We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Uh, Over the course of conversation with a colleague of mine, he was talking about a series of photographs, a collage really, floating about on Facebook. One side to the left depicts photographs of the likes of Albert Einstein, Carl Sandburg, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, Arturo Toscanini, a good Irish name for you. And on the left, on the left, a photograph of Snooky from Jersey Shore. By the way, if you don't know who that is... Congratulate yourself. The caption below this collage of photograph reads, If you know the person on the right, but none on the left, you might be what's wrong with America. And that, I think, is an ideal introduction to my next guest on the program tonight. He is the author of a number of best-selling books, including Intellectual Morons and A Conservative History of the American Left. His latest book is entitled Blue Collar Intellectuals, When the Enlightened and the Everyman elevated America. We're joined tonight by Daniel Flynn. Uh, Daniel, as we mentioned, in addition to being a best-selling author, is also a columnist for humanevents.com and a blogger at flynnfiles.com. And Daniel, thanks so much for being with us on the program tonight. Thank you for having me. I thought uh, that the story of that collage of photographs, I don't know what, but maybe you have seen them, in in many ways kind of defines exactly what has happened in this slow uh, but steady slide into the abyss in America today, uh, where even as we've tried to search for some sort of a connection between uh, the intellectuals and and the so-called inspiration for the Occupy Wall Street movement, there is scant little evidence of same. Yeah, I I haven't seen those pictures, but you you did what a good radio host will do, which is to create a visual with with your words. (laughs) So I I feel like I've I've seen those pictures, and I've certainly seen Snooki and and those other characters as well. But that's kind of where we're at um, as as a culture, where, you know, it it used to be the case um, around the mid-century mark that the United States of America, you know, the people of the United States of America were the best, you know, the most well-educated people in the history of the world. You had... University of the Air style radio programs, the Book of the Month Club, great books, discussion groups, meeting in YMCA's and union halls around the country. Um, you don't see that very much today. And I think part of the reason is that the everyman is, you know, rather than, than reaching for something higher, they're kind of dragging their arms ever lower, you know, for, for Snooky and the situation and all that kind of thing. Um, but on the other side of the coin, uh, you don't have intellectuals as eager to engage the everyman. Um, and we, we once had intellectuals, you know, the blue-car intellectuals that I write about, who spoke not just to other eggheads, but were, were very um, enthusiastic about opening up a conversation to all comers. And I think 
the, the, the issue we have today, sure, part of it's, uh, you know, Joe Sixpack not being, being um, as, as intellectually curious as he once was, but the other part of it is that you have, um, uh, you know, academics who are, who are operating in, in an intellectual ghetto. And let's face it, there needs to be some source of stimulation uh, to encourage that intellectual curiosity. And I think, as you aptly point out uh, throughout your new book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, I mean, part of this we can lay uh, squarely at the feet of, you know, reality shows, which are anything but, uh, you know, video games is entertainment. Uh, Facebook is our singular means by which we, we stay socially connected. I imagine what a shock it would be for our great-great-grandparents who communicated either in person, uh, faccia a faccia, as we would say in Italian, or by the old-fashioned method of, of handwriting letters, and now all of a sudden it's been reduced down to anything that you can get in 140 characters uh, on on Twitter, and this all of a sudden has now been sub, the substitute uh, for social interaction. I mean, I, I, I think we can point at a number of levels of the steady decline, if not outright decay, uh, not only our, our social interaction skills, but our, our intellectual skills as well. Yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, I, I was out in your neck of the woods researching this book. I knew something that you said really brought to mind um, some of my research in the archives, looking at people like Eric Hoffer at the Hoover Institution or Mil- Milton Friedman and Hoffer having some papers also at the San Francisco Public Library. And when you, when you research archives of people who lived, you know, 50, 100 years ago, you, you grasp how um, even just normal people, how, how good they were at writing. And they wrote letters. They wrote long letters to people. And I, I wonder what's going to happen 50 or 100 years from now uh, when people look at our writing. I don't know if they're going to be saving Twitter tweets or <laughs> saving text messages, but I shudder to think at, at uh, how they will um, look at us uh, from the way we write, because we're not, we're not really impressing people with that. I well, think. and you point out in the book, and I, I saw this, and, and there was a resounding knee-slapping uh, amen, brother, when I when I read this line inside of the book, uh, this notion that, you know, for the longest time we used to decry uh, the kind of trash that showed up at the grocery store uh, checkout line, you know, which was everything from, uh, you know, the world, world's weird news to uh, the National Enquirer, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all of a sudden today, it is hard to uh, differentiate between uh, what you see at the grocery checkout stand and what you see at the newsstand these days. And, and, and even, you know, even with the Internet and the ability of it to, to bring to us such a vast knowledge of the, the collected, uh, you know, awareness and understanding of the world, uh, right there at the fingertips of the keyboard, uh, it seems as if even so-called legitimate news sites uh, can't deal somehow with the abstraction to the outright uh, obsession of things like you know focusing on no talent, no buddies like a Kim Kardashian. All of this, sure. I think, just you know, indicative, as you pointed out, you know, when the newsstand is no different than the checkout line at the grocery store, um, you know, it, it might be subtle, but I think it's a very profound subtly, uh, subtlety as to what it says about who we have become as a nation. Yeah, I mean, the book is really about a time when smart looked for you, and I think what you have today is, you know, you you can still look, for, you can still find smart if you look hard enough. But it's, smart's not really looking for you. In other words, there's sort of an invasive stupidity. There is, you know, I, I travel a lot in, in writing books, and I get into the back of a cab, and all of a sudden, I don't know when this started, but there's a TV that I can't turn off in the back of a cab. You sit in an airport waiting room. There's no escape from, uh, you know, the, the CNN International blaring in the, in the background. You can't find a quiet corner to read. Even when you get on the subway, it used to be, if you you'd notice, you know, when you ride the subway, People would be reading. They'd be reading newspapers and magazines and books. 
And now, I mean, there's still some people who are reading, but most of the time people are texting, they're playing a video game, they're doing something with an electronic gadget. And I can't help but think from observing all this, how we, sp- you know, how we spend our leisure time, it's largely become a waste of time. And, you know, far be it for me to lecture someone, hey, you have to use your time in, in the way that I want you to use your time. I mean, that's not what I'm trying to do. But I, I can't help but thinking that the way we use our leisure time is really affecting us in a negative way as, as a country. You're right. And as you point out, you know, for, for, the, for the working man, the blue-collar guy that worked in industry uh, back in the 1930s and 40s, say, or who had migrated to states like California during the Dust Bowl uh, period in Oklahoma, um, you know, by, by no stretch of the imagination where these edu- educated people are necessarily highbrow or intellectuals. And yet, as you say, there was enough in popular, popular culture and enough influence by the so-called intellectuals that went looking for the common man or, or the blue-collar guy to help try and elevate him. I mean, my goodness, it, it's not that many years ago that things like, you know, Campbell's Playhouse would present uh, Shakespearean plays in their entirety uh, over the course of several evenings or the Firestein Theater with, with great orchestras and great opera. And this would be prime time television, 8 o'clock at night on a Wednesday evening and the entire family sat down and watched this and learned and they got exposed to some culture to some culture and, and they had a little bit of you know the, the intellectual exercise going on all of that has disappeared sure and you know I think about the first um, blue collar intellectual that I write about a guy named Will Durant um, and I you know one of the reasons why I think these blue collar intellectuals had and you know felt an obligation to, to engage the everyman is because they came from um, you know the, the mass of of, uh, of Americans that were not at the top, but were you know somewhere in the scrum there. And Will Durant, I mean, this is an amazing only in America story. His father was illiterate. I mean, Will Durant wrote the best-selling philosophy book in the 20th century, the story of philosophy. Uh, outsold Charles Lindbergh's autobiography after he he flew over the Atlantic. I mean, that's how much people were eager to read his book. Um, Will Durant, along with Ariel Durant, his wife. Wrote some of you know books that were perennially on the bestseller list. The hist- you know basically a history of the world, which we call the story of civilization. Eleven volume set uh, over the course of forty five years, from the nineteen twenties all the way up through the nineteen seventies. His dad couldn't speak a lick of English. He had ten kids, and he worked in a factory. And when we talk about the American dream, we're so transfixed on the monetary angle. And certainly, there are these rags to riches Horatio Alger stories. But the striver culture that I'm talking about in blue collar intellectuals also had to do with uh, an educational betterment. And I think the story of a guy like Will Durant uh, exemplifies that. And I think the fact that we don't see that as much anymore. Well, and we've, um, we've, pointed, we've, we've dumbed down democracy in, in, in every sense of the word. And unfortunately, uh, education, whether we're talking about uh, Main Street, K through 12, uh, on up to even the higher levels of education, has seen this huge paradigm shift from teaching people how to think, presenting the facts, and then allowing them to draw their own conclusions to the easy way out, simply what to think, where we can regurgitate a couple of details here and there that tend to it tends to sort of just make up a, a particular political opinion uh, or political thrust and end of story. And and this, I think, is demonstrating, as uh, Daniel Flynn points out in his book, the danger of what's happening uh, when we're no longer enlightened, when we're no longer capable of thinking for ourselves. And, you know, we've had some examples in not too far distant history 
uh, of what happens when uh, mankind stops thinking for itself and relies on someone else or, or some other body to think for it and the dangers that all of that brings about. We're talking today about his new book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, When the Enlightened and the Everyman Elevated America. Uh, those days are not that far ago, and I think things can be done to, to revive those days and, and to bring it back. Uh, but it's going to take an awful lot of work on all of our behalfs. We're going to take a time out, come back to more of our conversation. Um, and as we do so, the phone lines are open for thoughts and comments. Toll free at 888-367-5329-888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. In particular... Are there some intellectual types out there that would agree? My goodness, what's happened? That we've, we've dumbed down society and we've extracted out of popular culture anything that gives a sense of a, a refinement to it, of culture or class to it. Where pop culture today, if you spend any time on the internet or watching MTV or anything that masquerades as, as entertainment on many cable television stations today, uh, it's become an absolute wasteland. It was, was not always like this. So if we keep that in mind, then the question is, what do we do to revive it so we can get America back on track? Big equation here at a lot of levels, to be sure. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking with author Daniel Flynn, a look at blue-collar intellectuals when the enlightened and the everyman elevated America. And we're talking about uh, what has become the slow slide down into the abyss. And as you point out in the book, Daniel, as much as we'd like to um, say, gee, what's wrong with America? Where did we go wrong? There's a degree to which the intellectuals have ultimately failed the culture. They no longer engage the culture the way we once did. Um, you mentioned my friend Milton Freeman, who had been a guest on this program many, many times uh, before his passing, and how much he liked to engage the common man. At what point do you think, where, where do we see the distinction when that ceased to be the case? Well, I, I think with a guy like Friedman, he has a very interesting career because the first half of it is essentially engaging other intellectuals. And then at a certain point, he, he goes as far as he's going to go within academia, and he decides to write Capitalism and Freedom, which is for a lay audience and not for an academic audience. He decides to write this Newsweek column, which he writes for 18 years, uh, every three weeks. The Free to Choose documentary, he was very skeptical of that because he thought anyone who could be convinced by a uh, half-an-hour broadcast on television would just be reconverted to the opposite position the next time uh, another half-hour program came about, you know, advocating the opposite position. So he, he was skeptical of some of these things, but he thought that it was his obligation as an economist to engage the, the educated um, layperson. I think, uh, and, and Friedman was obviously doing this in, into, the, into the 1990s and, and really up until his death just a few years ago. There are still people that you see doing this. I mean, that one, one guy who, you know, I don't necessarily agree with, with what he does, but I think Ken Burns is someone who you might call a blue-collar intellectual. I mean, he, he's someone who people think he's an historian. He's not. He's some guy with a history degree, just like me. You know, he's a history degree from a, from a college, and he decided to make documentaries. And, boy, that's a tough thing to make history come alive, to, to, to make the dead walk again, essentially. And that's, that's what he does with some of his documentaries. And I... I really admire that. Um, I, I may not admire some of his views, but I admire people who at least make the effort to, um, to reach the common man. And I don't think that we see that too much um, with academia, with people who are sort of off in their insular world talking amongst themselves. I think they would be better served if they talked 
to, uh, you know, if they got out of their intellectual ghettos and talked to the everyman. And I think the everyman would be better served as well. They, boy, it would, be, you know, it would be a win-win for everyone. A big part of this is is the kind of the isolation into the ivory tower, so to speak. But then to something else that I made reference uh, to Daniel before the break, and that is what I've identified as a major shift. Where at one time uh, the, the principal component. Um, in education was to teach students, whether we're talking about K through 12 or at the higher degree levels, how to think. Yes, certainly there were attempts at influencing. There was no doubt about that. I, I think that we can see, you know, a, a, an agenda of one sort or another woven through lots of periods uh, of history, certainly in, in 20th and 21st century history, to be sure. But all of a sudden, we, we saw this major shift in education, particularly in the late 50s and early 1960s, where it was no longer about teaching the students what to think, giving them the tools so they could draw their own conclusions, but rather we kind of skipped over that process and now we just gave them what to think. We went from how to think to what to think. Yeah, well, one of the, um, the blue-collar intellectuals that I write about is Mortimer Adler, and he was really the evangelist behind the great books movement. And one of the reasons why um, Adler was so successful with, with the great books and selling them is because there was a void that the, the you know, Harvard and, and some of the other leading institutions really stopped teaching um, those cultural common denominators, those great books of the Western world. So sure, this was that, like when they, they published, uh, in fact, I've got a whole set at home, like the Harvard Classics? Strangely enough, Charles Eliot, who was the guy behind the Harvard Classics, one of the reasons that was successful as well is because Eliot had basically created that void by getting rid of the classics and the curriculum at Harvard. So there's an irony there. Huh. And with, with, with a guy like uh, Adler, whose background is really amazing in the sense that He's probably the only Ivy League Ph.D. I know who had not gotten a high school diploma nor a college diploma before getting his Ph.D. But the amazing thing for me is not really his academic accomplishments, but his accomplishments as a salesman in the sense that you can, you can go door-to-door and sell someone a vacuum cleaner. You can go door-to-door and, and sell someone flatware. But the idea of going door-to-door and selling everyday Americans a million sets of the 54-volume great books of the Western, uh, great books of the Western world, that to me is absolutely amazing. And Mortimer Adler helped do that at mid-century in America. And his big point, here's his big point to get to your question. His big point was, you know, if you just have a monarchy, if you just have one king, um, you know, there's that phrase, the education fit for a king. And you, all you have to be concerned about is one guy's education and your government's fine. But what happens when your king is essentially 311 million people? <laughs> you have to, you know, that that flaw, that idea, the education fit for a king. You've got to apply that to 311 million people. And if you don't concern yourself with everyone's education, you're going to have uh, a citizenry that's not only not fit to govern the country, but they're really not fit to govern their own souls. And that's the problem, as Adler saw it, and that's why he was such an enthusiast of, of Aristotle and Plato and Shakespeare and all of those great books that used to be the cultural common denominators and now often are left out of the curriculum entirely. Well, and let's face it, we, we can just simply sit down and look at the headline news today, and we see the results of this. You know, what happens? Well, you end up with a, a, a monetary, a moral, a social, and a spiritual deficit at every level. 
you know, in in economic terms, that's what leads to a sixteen point four trillion dollar deficit that nobody can quite explain. Uh, in in moral terms or spiritual terms, this is what leads to to people acting out in unbelievable ways, kind of the personification of of man's ultimate you know cruelty to man, and 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 no sense of guidelines or respect for others, for life, for any of it. So I, I think we're, also, we're seeing the product of it. Yeah, and, and can I add in cultural terms? Um, you know, we just um, we just went through 2011, and this is the first year in the history of Hollywood. Just just to throw something out there that I think every listener can relate to: the first time in the history of Hollywood that the top ten best-selling movies at the box office in a year were all either remakes, sequels, or based on old comic book characters mm. 50 or 60 years ago. In other words, there's a complete dearth of originality in the entertainment that we have in the sense that, that we're, you know, we're watching The Fast and the Furious Part 5 and you know, The Hangover Part 2, and that's what people are buying. Um, and it, to me, it just speaks to uh, the fact that as a culture, we're living off the fumes of an America from 50, 60 years ago, and you could probably say the same thing economically and, 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 and translate that into other areas beyond the culture as well. I, I think that, you know, as much as uh, we probably don't want to use uh, what's selling at the box office as a um, measuring stick, as a yardstick of what's going on in, in popular culture and society today, I think it's oftentimes a very accurate one, and you're right. I mean, there seems to be this this major creative deficit going on, and, and where what things that do seem to strike a chord are rehashing of films that sometimes have their genesis going back 20, 30, 40 years or more. We're going to take a brief time out. When we come back, I want to talk, too, about what seems to be the disappearance of of the warning system, the early warning system that America had in place. Now, to be sure, thank goodness, there are people like Daniel Flynn and others that are trying to, to fill the gap. But whatever happened to the Aldous Huxleys of the world and the Ray Bradburys and the, the Orwells of the world who wrote books warning of what happens to a society when you force forfeit your intellectual rights, your moral rights, your spiritual rights, your right of self-governance. We'll get back to more of our conversation. A look at blue-collar intellectuals when the enlightened and the everyman elevated America. Back to our conversation with best-selling author Daniel Flynn as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Best-selling author Daniel Flynn, the book Blue-Collar Intellectuals. By the way, you can get a copy of the book at... uh, bookstores, and of course, information too on his daily blog at flynnfiles.com. Daniel, what of the notion that we've also attended to lost kind of the early warning system? You know, I, I grew up on the, the, the writings of the likes of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, uh, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. I mean, everybody remembers him for his work on Star Trek, and yet the, the, the prolific writing that he did, the warning uh, that's contained in Fahrenheit 451, George Orwell's 1984. I mean, so many aspects of any of these three books and others like them that, that have served as kind of the early warning sign it seems as if a lot of that has kind of disappeared today. We, we, we live all today in the moment, and we don't think much about tomorrow, do we? Well, there, there's an interesting tidbit in my book relating to both 1984 and Fahrenheit 451. There was a, a, a prep school in my home state of Massachusetts. They charged $40,000 a year for students to attend. And a couple of years ago, they decided to get rid of all of their books in their library. <laughs> the headmaster said, People are acting like this is, you know, 1984. It's not. And I thought, you know, it's not just 1984. It's Fahrenheit 451. And instead of spending the money on books, they decided to spend 
um, $50,000 or more than $50,000 revamping the library, adding three flat screen televisions to what once was a library and a cappuccino machine. <laughs> so that's the brave new world to sort of complete your trifecta there that, that we're entering into. I think of a guy like Bradbury, and, uh, you know, when he was a kid, he, he had a lot going against him when he was growing up in L.A. He was, he was uh, extremely poor, so poor that he had to sleep in the same bed with his brother up until the time he was an adult. It was a pull-out couch in their living room. And uh, he, the other thing he had going against him was he was like a nerd nerd. He used to corner Marlena Dietrich and Clark Gable and, and Judy Garland for autographs on his roller skates around uh, Hollywood. He was really a terror. The one thing he had going for him is that he was super smart, Ray Bradbury. And so when it came time to go to college, he, he couldn't go. He, in the Depression, you know, he didn't, have, they didn't have any money. And so what he did instead was he went to the public library for three days a week, and he read, and he read, and he read. And he did this for four years, three days a week, in, in lieu of going to college. And I think that a guy like Bradbury, he had it right. In other words, uh, today, these days, people go to college, and all they care about is that piece of paper at the end of four years. They care less about the, the, the education that comes in between. Bradbury, all he cared about was the education. He could have cared less about that piece of paper. And I think his life gives us a little bit of a lesson to see how our priorities are a little bit screwed up today, where people go to college for the credentialism, for, for job training, but they don't go for the learning. Well, they, I mean, they go and they go and they go in order to get the paper, to get the degree, to get, earn a higher salary so they can keep up with the Joneses. And yet there's very little... And there are certainly always exceptions to this rule, but there there is not as much emphasis by any means as there used to be about getting your degree and then going out and doing something to change the world. That's right, and, and you know I'm, I'm not I don't want to make this into a, a big tirade against higher education, but there are uh, you know the, the blue collar intellectuals that I write about. I mean, there's a guy like uh, Milton Friedman who obviously had a huge benefit from being at the University of Chicago, their economics department. But there's someone like Eric Hoffer who, in San Francisco, was by day loading uh, you know cargo off the docks of ships in uh, San Francisco. He, he was bay. a longshoreman, wasn't he? Was that? Wasn't he a longshoreman? He was a longshoreman, and the, the point here is that he never went to school for a day in his life, and yet, you know, by day he's doing this longshoreman work, and by night in his off hours, he's writing what became The True Believer, which really became one of the best books in the 20th century to understand in the 20th century. And, um, be, you know, because of the fact that there was this American general in station France who read his book in 1951 and then came back to the United States and became president, he was elected president the next year, we're talking about Dwight Eisenhower, who loved Hoffer's book, and because everyone wants to read what, what the president's reading, Hoffer became a big celebrity, and all of a sudden the intellectual that all of America wants to consult is a guy who's never been to school a day in his life. Why do you think, then, we've seen this shift at the intellectual level, where the desire to foster an educated and cultured society just seems to have fallen by the wayside? Boy, when you, when you uh, hear intellectuals talk, they speak in a jargon that I don't even think they understand, uh, they write books that nobody reads. They speak at conferences that nobody attends. It's, it's almost as if they're trying to convey their apartness from the rest of the society. They're not really trying to convey any substantive idea, per se, but they're trying to convey how they're in this educated clique, how they're, you know, they're kind of above everyone else. And to me, I mean, that may be cathartic. It may make them feel good. But I don't know what it, what it does. You know, it does, certainly doesn't do anything for society. And, you know, that's part of the reason I wrote this book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, because here are intellectuals who engaged the public and who spoke to the public and, you know, who may have had their own 
intellectual work with you know with, with involving strictly other intellectuals, but who at least made an effort to uplift um, the masses from which they sprang. And I think nowadays, because a lot of the people who are in academia um, certainly don't come from that. Uh, the, the kind of uh, place that Ray Bradbury or an Eric Hoffer came from, they have absolutely no interest of uh, of, of uh, taking that on. So, and, and rather than having kind of come up through the system, so to speak, uh, they they began as a member of the elite. That's all that they've known, and so they they kind of hover in that rarefied air with no interest whatsoever of their feet ever touching ground. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And, I, you know, look, I'm married to an academic, so I don't want to bash them too much or else I get kicked out of my house. You'll be sleeping with a dog you... tonight otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, 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 you know, there was something great going on in America for much of the last century um, where you had these guys like Will, Will and Ariel Durant and Ray Bradbury and, and, and Milton Friedman and, and, uh, and, and, you know, all the people that I write about who were making an effort to engage the everyman. And, of course, that's kind of what talk radio does. But you don't see that as much uh, from, from academics or scholars or intellectuals anymore. And that's kind of why I wrote the book, is hoping to jumpstart that again. How do we do that, then? A closing thought from me, if we can, Daniel, in a minute or so that we have left. How do we get it jumpstarted once again? Well, I think in everyone in their own life, you know, I don't, I don't think this is the type of book that, that people are going to read and say, oh, well, let's pass this piece of legislation, or aha, you know, this is what we do to make everything right. Um, it's not one of those books, but what it is, is I think anyone who reads it can make those changes in their own lives. They can shut off the television for a day or shut off the internet for the day and pick up a book. You mentioned jokingly in the, in, in coming into the segment, you know, if book, you know, bookstores exist. I mean, I used to say you could buy it at Barnes and Noble and Borders, but there's no more Borders. And it doesn't seem to me too many used bookstores anymore. And I think if just people um, look at the common denominator, how um, people have lifted themselves up intellectually over the course of the last 400 years or so, the common denominator there is the book, and I think people really got to get back into to reading and not so much being into in front of screens, whether it's your cell phone or your computer or your television. Well, and moreover, I think it's important to underscore the fact, Daniel, that this is not just for the matter of, of you know, lifting the common denominator and, 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 and uh, you know, sparing the culture from further demise and, and returning once again um, a sense of, of poise and culture and class to a pop culture. Uh, at certain levels, this also gets to the heart of, of, the, of the very protection of otherwise the ultimate demise, I think, of our society and our nation. Because if we don't have in stock and trade, at the very least, our, at least our, our, our intellectual capabilities, uh, there's not much that we have left. Yeah, and, that, and that's, I think, why Adler was doing the great books of the Western world, because society was being torn asunder, because we no longer had these cultural common denominators. And he said, look, these are the great books that have united us as a culture. Let's get back into them. Even if, and it, 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 you know, when he was on the cover of Time magazine, the subheadline said, should professors commit suicide? And that was in jest, of course, but there was a grain of truth to it in the sense that he was offering education without the middleman, knocking the middleman out and basically saying education is a lifetime responsibility. It's not something you do exclusively in schools. It's something to do over the course of your life. And I think if people look at it from that perspective, um, they may be a little bit more healthy. One final question i got to squeeze in here. You talk in the book about apostate historians. Uh, elaborate on that for a moment, would you, Daniel? 
Yeah, sure. Will and Ariel Durant. I mean, Will Durant to me, he was the apostate historian. Everything he did when he when he got when he went, was in the seminary and then he decided one day he was an atheist. He got not only got kicked out of the seminary, not only to leave the seminary, but he got excommunicated from the Catholic Church. When he when he became an anarchist, um, he he was an anarchist teacher. He fell in love with one of his students who was 15 years old. And they got. She was, he was 27. He got. He got married at the at the city hall. She went to the marriage ceremony with her roller skates. He was always doing things against the grain. When he was an anarchist, a later socialist, went to the Soviet Union. Everyone expected him to come back with all these tales of heaven on earth. But instead, he said, "This place is a gigantic prison." <laughs> and so everything that he did in life, he always was was um, doing the opposite of what was expected of him. And of course, his marriage ends up by winning jointly a Pulitzer Prize with his wife. They get, they're married for 68 years. You wouldn't expect that out of someone, a teacher who marries a student. Amazing. Daniel, we sure appreciate the time and the insights. Great book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, When the Enlightened and the Everyman Elevated America, available on the web through Amazon.com, bookstores, if you can find them, and again, Daniel's blog at FlynnFiles.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I got a telephone call on a Saturday evening while enjoying dinner with some friends. It's about uh, probably 6 o'clock. And it was my bank calling my cell phone to say, Now, Mr. Roberts, we just wanted to touch bases with you. We noticed a couple of of out-of-the-ordinary charges on your credit card. And one was for approximately $1,000 at uh, Fry's in San Jose. And the other charge was almost $2,000, $1,700 and change, as I recall, at a Walmart store in Modesto. And what caught their attention was the fact that the two charges fell approximately 15 minutes apart. Now, I don't care if you're traveling on a Learjet. San Jose to Modesto in 15 minutes just simply isn't possible. Well, their suspicions were correct, and my worst fears had been realized. My credit card information had been compromised, and at least two people were running around the state of California with my credit card number just picking up all kinds of goodies at electronic stores. Well, the good news is we shut down the card immediately. We were able to fend off any further um, illicit charges against the card, and uh, uh, while a bit uh, chagrined, uh, it got no worse than that. For literally tens of hundreds of thousands of Americans, though, the story of identity theft doesn't end there. In fact, it begins there and gets much worse, as it did for my next guest tonight, who's taken the time to help share his horrific story with the rest of us and hoping that you can learn from some of the do's and don'ts and understand what you need to do once you've either discovered that your identity has been compromised or, better yet, steps to take to help negate or reduce the possibility of that happening. Scott Merritt has written a new book called Simply Identity Theft, Recovery is Possible. Scott, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Your story is a bit um, unusual in the sense that you first learned of this, well, much like I did. Your, your bank had contacted you by a letter indicating that probably not unlike the 70 million people who got compromised over at Target, that there had been some kind of a breach of data with relationship to um, accounts there at the bank where you did business. Though when you went and looked into all of this initially, you discovered that you weren't one of them, nothing to miss had occurred, but um, that was kind of a real false sense of security for a short moment, wasn't it? Absolutely. Tell us more what happened. Well, what happened, uh, I, a couple months down the road, I, I checked my statement, and again, I didn't see anything, so I didn't, wasn't too alarmed. But then about three months down the road, 
Um, I started having all kinds of overdrawn accounts, checks bouncing, uh, credit cards being opened in my name, and I got hit really hard because not only did I have personal accounts at that institution, but corporate accounts. So this so went beyond really, really quickly. Th- this went beyond simply somebody um, copied or, or got their hands on your credit card information and started charging against you. In fact, is is it fair to describe this as saying that suddenly there were two Scott Merritts running about with the with the same or, or held in common the same um, credit identity, and unfortunately, the bad version of Scott Merritt was causing all kinds of problems for the good version. That, that 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 would be a mild way of putting it, but it's more like eight or ten Scott Merritt's running. Really? What, what happens in a case like that? Is this information, once it has been compromised because somebody's managed to, uh, to you know, hack their way into a banking computer or through the computers at uh, Target or whatever and gather enough personal information to be able to go out there and, and start opening up accounts in your name, do they sell this information off? Is that how it's getting to be to, to multiple persons, multiple that individuals? Is exa- that is exactly what happens. A lot of times, it, like with the Target situation, what probably will happen with a lot of those people is is the actual fraudsters will sell those those names and phone numbers and account numbers off to other people and they'll take their cash and run and then they'll take the, the people who buy that information will take it and multiply the problem and that problem can get multiplied not only across the state but across continents too can't it that is exact that is exactly at one point in my process i actually had someone from the uk call me oh <laughs> So, and that, you're, that, that was a nice, that one was obviously very easy to identify, given it was on another continent. Now, some some people listening to this would say, "Well, Scott, you, you were notified initially by your bank that there was a breach uh, of data. You watched it over a couple of months, no suspicious activity. Then all of a sudden, all kinds of suspicious activity. Why couldn't you simply go back to the bank and say, "Hey, look, uh, you know, the letter that you sent me is demonstrating that, yeah, now I in fact am a victim of all of this. So let's shut everything down and stop these criminals in their tracks." Well, and that would be a logical thing if we were dealing with a credit card. When you deal with a Visa debit card tied to your checking account, you do not have the same protections that you would have. If, if we were dealing with a national credit card. Once it's tied to your checking account, uh, some of the safeguards are not there, and that therein lies the problem. Now, the bank, the first couple times, they might eat the charges and, and, and say, thank you for you know banking with us, but if it happens repeatedly like it did with me, or in an excessive amount, eventually they're going to stick you with the bill, which is what happened to me. Well, in your case, it was not only also sticking you with the bill because of repeated activity, but as you suggested, this was activity... Uh, across multiple layers. I mean, do these people go around and start, you know, buying cars in your name, opening up checking accounts in your name, and and credit cards and so forth everywhere? Well, what they did is they uh, they started using both personal and corporate cards, credit cards, and opening credit cards and what have you. They they cleaned out four of my checking accounts. Uh, they uh, I ended up with overdrawn fees because I had actually written you know checks out for my own use. So <laughs> I then I had to go make them right. When the corporate accounts were hit, I actually had to go in and make my partners whole. Uh, so it got ugly very quickly. I mean, it, it, it was whatever number you have in your mind, triple it, and then, then you'll have a fathom. Because when you, I'm a financial guy by trade, because I'm in the securities business, 
And so when you manage millions, you become a target. So when we think that, well, if anything like that untoward happens, I'm simply going to call the bank. The bank will shut down my credit card. They will issue me a new one, or they will shut down my ATM card, issue me a new one, open up a new account number. Everything will be hunky-dory. That wasn't at all your experience, was it? Absolutely, it was not. In fact, what I would encourage everyone to do, if it happens... First of all, number one is do not use the Visa debit card tied to your checking account. I know they're convenient, but every time you use that, you're opening up your checking account to fraudsters. And that what that does is it, once that's happened once or twice, it will happen over and over and over because people will sell that information. Well, what if they say, well, wait, wait a minute now, Scott, though, I have a PIN number attached to that, and it's a, it's a pretty crafty number. No one knows my birth date, so how could, they ever, how could they ever compromise my PIN? Well, because what they actually have is they have uh, predictive dialers, and they can actually figure out what your PIN is. No matter how creative you think you are, I guarantee you they can, they can figure that out. That's one of the reasons why most of the European market has went to a chip system to prevent that very thing. And, of course, the irony is when you go to a store and you make a point-of-sale purchase with your, your, your debit card, you have to enter your PIN number to authorize that charge, and it's going out over that retailer's wires, you know, although it might ultimately be connected back to your bank, it's still going through some third party that potentially could capture that data, couldn't it? That, that is exactly what's happening, and that's, that, is what, that is what's happening, that, that transition between the retailer and the credit card processor, uh, that, that is what's happened to companies like Target and, and Neiman Marcus and these other guys. That's exactly, that is exactly what happened. In my case, someone actually broke into a brick-and-mortar building and got my information. However, obviously, in the case of Neiman Marcus and those guys, someone actually stole that information out of the air. And this is ex- extreme um, risk for anybody that has any decent level of credit, isn't it? Because if you've got a little bit of money in the bank or you've been dutiful in paying your bills on time and you've got a credit score you know, in, in the upper sevens, you're, you're the ideal target, aren't you? They're, you are the person that these thieves want to be able to, to not only get their hands on any of your liquid assets that they can drain from your accounts, but then steal your identity and turn around and start opening up credit cards and charging those to the max as well. So it really comes down to the, the better the better discipline you are at your finances, the higher risk you have. Is that true? Uh, in, to some degree. However, how you can manage that situation, it comes down to one word in it. The word is identity. And I know this is going to sound peculiar, but you want to make sure that your name and your address and your phone number that you use on all financial matters matches identically the way it appears on your Social Security card, on your driver's license, on your bank statement, on your credit card statement. And I, and, and I mean remedial. I mean, if, for example, on your driver's license you have a middle initial, but on your, on your Social Security card you don't, you need to change one of them so that they match. Same thing with your bank account. If it, your name appears one way and on another credit card statement it appears another way, that's, that's an opportunity for fraud. Same thing with address. Let's say your address has the word road in it. And in one, one, in one.